Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Marketing and Outreach. Joining me is my co-host, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine, Bill Hamlet. Hello, Bill. Hello, Ward. Happy July. Ha- ha- is this the first show we've done in July? I think it's actually the second, but, uh, you know, it's but July. But the sentiment it's, is there. Happy July, my friend. Yeah, yeah. It's summertime. It's D.C. It's hot. It's 90s. It's humid, you know. Right. So we have a great guest on this episode, so why don't we get right to him? This is the first time we've done a son and then a father on the show. So our, our guest today is Admiral Sandy Winnefeld, a retired uh, four-star admiral uh, who was the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff before he retired from active duty seven or eight years ago. And his article uh, is titled, Winter is Coming. It's in the July issue of Proceedings. It starts on page 24. Uh, so Admiral Winnefeld, welcome to the show. Well, it's nice to join you, uh, and uh, and I'm happy to be chasing my son, as I usually do, when we're running or playing golf or doing any, anything else. So it's July, but winter is coming. So I'll just hit the highlights of the first page a little bit. So you start with effective st- security strategies must balance four key variables, ends, ways, means, and the security environment. And you go on to say, today we live in a de- deteriorating security environment with the global operating system that kept the U.S. and its allies secure and prosperous in the wake of world wars gradually unraveling. And then you say, the erosion of this security environment may hasten the end of the most recent in a series of long-wave geopolitical cycles. A major test of U.S. power uh, is already underway, and it could signal the end of the current cycle. So that sounds pretty ominous. Uh, tell Tell us what that's all about. Well, first of all, uh, great to be with you again. Um, This was one of the most complex things to write that I've ever attempted because there are so many factors at play. Uh, There's the the balance among ends, ways, and means. There's uh, uh, this notion of geopolitical cycles uh, and uh, a certain um, willful complacency, I think, that we have on the part of our entire government, uh, much less the military, in terms of approaching these really difficult problems that we're facing. So, uh, as far as these long-wave geopolitical cycles go, there, there is, uh, I think, an identifiable trend. Uh, if you look at uh, the outcome of the 30 Years' War in Europe, which was one of the bloodiest conflicts this planet has ever seen, uh, statesmen came together and they put together a system called the Peace of Westphalia that was intended to sort of prevent that from ever happening again. And so you go for 150 years or so, and you end up with uh, complacency, successive generations forgetting about this horribly bloody uh, conflict that they had, and internal stressors, and you end up with the Napoleonic Wars. And in the wake of the Napoleonic Wars, you have something called the Concert of Europe, which was put together by statesmen to try to prevent something like this from ever happening again. And then you, you go another 100 years this time, and you have the First World War, after which uh, statesmen failed to put together something that would prevent another conflict, and now you have World War II. So I sort of lump those two together as, as one catastrophe. And in the wake of that war, we're all very familiar, and it's in popular uh, literature now, that we have uh, statesmen established uh, a system within which we live today. And I think it's pretty obvious that that system is under assault both from the outside and the inside. And uh, the question really is, how long will this cycle last? How will it end? Uh, the one thing we know for sure is that people never really um, expect it to end. It ends suddenly uh, in a bloody conflict that, that you know, people wish they could have prevented. So 
that's what I worry about in the larger context here. So, you know, how that ends ways means environment balance fits inside that is sort of the subject of the article. You you talk about the uh, the ways and means uh, and, and what that means in terms of the program of record and in terms of how, how we do strategy. What specifically is going on that troubles you and what, what should we be doing along those lines? Well, I think um, principally we have a tendency as, as human beings, as governments, and certainly as militaries to uh, get uh, stuck in a sort of a do loop of our existing ways. Uh, you know, we, we grow up in war, war fighting communities that, you know, we believe in, in our DNA, whether you're a, an army tanker or a, a Navy submariner, surface warrior, or an Air Force fighter pilot, you know, this is what you grow up with. This is what you believe. It's the best thing going. And if you're confronted with an improving threat, you just want more and better. You know, that's that's what we tend to lunge for is is more um, means and, you know, tactical ways that go along with those new and better means. When at some point you have to sort of face the reality that that the competition is just getting really good. And uh, you no longer have uh, overmatch that you used to have. Uh, and it makes sense at some point, as you continue to try to improve your existing means, to be sure, to start looking ahead at, you know, what is the next intellectual leap that will enable you to, to remain dominant on the battlefield uh, and in this competition? There are a lot of examples out there from business. You know, the, the one that people love to point to is Kodak and Polaroid. You know, Kodak and Polaroid, their engineers actually designed a dis digital camera, but they could not bring themselves to disrupt their model, their business model of making film and selling film. That's where the revenue came from, not so much the cameras. It couldn't break out of that. It was just too hard. And so they were very easily disrupted almost overnight, uh, the same way the dodo bird was in some small South Indian Ocean island when uh, it lost the ability to fly because there were no threats on the ground. And when humans arrived and dogs arrived, you know, they were, the, that bird was gone in a generation. So this is what you worry about, of getting stuck in your, in your ways and not having the prescience to, to try to look ahead uh, to what's going to disrupt you in the future. It's out there. So for a long time, the U.S. military industrial complex was really good at out- performing or out inventing our, our uh, competitors, right? So Soviet Union in the Cold War, our engineers were better, our industrial complex, our economy was better. We stayed generations of technology and sound quieting and thrust and semiconductors ahead of them. So what's happening now with the, the competition with China? Well, first of all, I'll tell you that our engineers are still better than theirs. Um, and uh, it's what we ask them to do that matters. Uh, you know, it, uh, the primes uh, and truth in advertising, I'm on the board of directors of one of them. Uh, they're really good at doing exactly what the military hands them in a requirements process. Uh, and they'll do it better than anybody in the world. Uh, when you have a, a competitor that's, you know, stealing you blind, you know, taking that technology, you're doing your their research and development for them, basically, when they're able to to exfiltrate you know, the entire plans, the F-35, for example, or they are clever in uh, doing joint ventures with, with companies that allow them to circumvent some of the export control rules and those sorts of things. It's natural that they're going to start closing the gap. Now, they may never actually get that gap completely closed in a conventional sense, but there are two things happening here. One is 
we've always used this overmatch to to uh, take care of the tyranny of distance that we have to have had to work with and also the tyranny of initiative. You know, we're not going to start a war out there. It would be them that would would start it. Well, as those conventional gaps close, it gets harder and harder to overcome those two uh, problems. And then when they also go and start to create asymmetric means, things that we aren't quite as good at, like counter space, those sorts of things where they have they've watched us. They know how we fight. They know we're dependent on networks and the like. And they have specifically gone after that weak point in our system. Then it starts to become extremely difficult. And and, you know, we have an old saying, the hog won't butcher itself. Uh, in, industry will not go out necessarily and come up with disruptive new concepts that new technologies could bring to life and, and hand them to the military because the military doesn't welcome them. Uh, but they're really good at, at innovating within the current concept. So the, the 30,000 foot problem that you outline starts with the paragraph talking about restless states, challenging the legal strictures and values, um, points to China and Russia. And then you also mentioned that this is coming headlong into the phenomenon of a growing nationalism and sort of we're destroying ourselves from the inside. And, and you talk about our neglect of our diplomatic core um, and then scratchy and transactional relationships with longstanding allies. This sort of alludes to our NATO situation at the moment. So what is it we have to do with respect to our own house, never mind the program of record or the DOD, you know, NDAA? What, what is it that we have to do uh, to remedy this particular problem? Well, Ward, that's a really good question. Uh, this international system that we talk about so much is, is sort of held together by the glue of what I would call credible diplomacy, uh, military uh, security guarantees through alliances, free and fair trade, uh, and um, values, and also uh, rule of law. So if you look at those sort of five things, and, and they've always been assault under assault from the outside. You know, the other guys are using diplomacy against us. They're trying to build credible militaries. They're you know, China's trying to, uh, you know, basically wreck free trade uh, in, in the world. Uh, lawfare, such as in the South China Sea, you know, values that. But when you are now in a situation where those are, are being eroded from the inside, uh, you know, we, we really have emasculated our State Department, which has since the time of Jefferson really been in the lead for us in terms of solving international problems. If you look at, you know, time and time again, it's been the State Department doing this. Uh, the military, we, we've talked about that separately as a problem, maybe getting, uh, you know, the best military in the world, to be sure, but maybe a little too stuck in its ways and a little vulnerable to disruption. You look at free trade, again, under assault from the inside, uh, canceling Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership and the like. You know, we always do better when we do free trade in groups rather than, than unilaterally, bilaterally. Uh, rule of law, again, uh, we have not exactly presented the best example uh, on the planet lately for rule of law. And then, you know, values speak for themselves. So so that international system is, is uh, really under attack. It's never been uh, quite as vulnerable today as it has been uh, since the, say, 70 or so years since it's been put in place. So we need to reinvigorate those. And, and I'll stay out of politics here because as a former senior naval officer, I'm not a, a politician or political, but we do need to step up and realize what's happening and reinvigorate those tools. That gets at the, what do we need to do internally and then externally? In your article, you mentioned that the adversary is not going to play by our rules. So not only are they trying to undercut those five uh, elements of the international system that 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 predominate now, 
Uh, but they're also going to do different things. And earlier you mentioned the tyranny of distance and the fact that Saddam Hussein in 1990, 1991 gave us the advantage of allowing us to build up forces for four or five months to pick the time when we wanted to go to war rather than the time that he wanted to go to war, right? And you mentioned, you know, the Chinese aren't going to do that. Uh, the Russians in Crimea did not do that, right? So how uh, how do we adapt uh, the military system and maybe even the uh, diplomatic system to that reality? Well, um, first of all, Saddam Hussein did that twice, by the way. Right. <laughs> so it's really ingrained in our system that, you know, we have an American way of war. We're going to go in there with guns blazing after we put everything in place and we're going to fight the way we love to fight. And the adversary is going to cooperate with that. I'm afraid the Chinese and the Russians are, are a lot smarter than Saddam Hussein was. Uh, and this is where you get into the phenomenon of mirror imaging. And, and here's where it's, I think, really important to read about your adversary and understand how uh, that system thinks. Uh, I mean, it, it's such a cliche, but one of my favorite books um, on the planet is Sun Tzu's Art of War. Uh, and you know, I built a brief while I was the vice chairman that literally was about our competition with China through the eyes of Sun Tzu uh, and, and his sayings. Uh, and uh, boy, we are we are living those as we speak. And they are just not going to fight the way we think about fighting in a Mahanian, you know, fleet on fleet, you know, decisive victory at sea uh, way. They're going to do it the Chinese way, which is utterly and completely different from the way we think. And we've got to we've got to come to grips with that. There's no way they want to have a long kinetic battle with a nuclear armed you know, adversary. Um, it's going to be um, well you know, set up in advance. Uh, it's going to be a surprise. Uh, it will be artfully done well inside our decision cycle as a country. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's coming if we if we allow it, allow it to happen, if we don't put new ways in place to present them with dilemmas that would uh, cause them to think twice about doing this. And not necessarily that they would fail in doing it, although that's important, but the consequences of doing it. Uh, and that gets back to the international system. If you have a lot of partners on board, uh, you know, the Chinese hate that. They, they just, they love cutting people out of the herd and going one-on-one. -on -one. If they know that there's an entire international consensus against them, that's a big deterrent. If they know that you're threatening their ability to control their own people, I mean, you can seriously do that. Uh, that's a real deterrent to them because that's you know when we wake up in the morning, uh, you know, our politicians think about keeping power, but they know if they lose power, they're not going to be killed. Uh, it's a lot different in, in a totalitarian state. Uh, so so that's a real vulnerability that we could exploit. And you don't necessarily exploit that with F-35s and, uh, you know, ATACMs and things like that. There are other ways to get at that problem. That brings me to the COVID-19 threat, which, you know, we didn't see that coming. And that certainly has changed the world order. It may affect defense budgets going forward. It'll certainly there's already talk about shifting budgets, you know, between education and DOD and, and different things like that. So is the 725 plus billion dollar defense budget done? Are those days gone? Yeah, I think the best we're going to see is flat in real terms. There's two things that, uh, you know, very definitely impact the defense budget. One is uh, if if uh, a Democratic administration is is wins, and particularly if they have all three houses of Congress, then you're going to probably find that, that they are going to need to um, 
uh, sort of appease the populist side of the party. And there, there will be some pressure there for them to shift money around. No question about it. And then layer on, and I'm, and I'm not making a political statement there at all. It's just, you know, the way it is. Um, the other piece is in paying for some of these massive stimulus uh, uh, things that we've done lately. And our debt to GDP ratio is, is probably heading towards about 115% where it was 80% earlier this year. And that's a big shift. Um, you know, the budget hawks are, are going to are going to probably uh, prevail over the defense hawks, I would think, over the next few years. And so I, I think that we have to face the, the likelihood of having reduced means in that ways, means, ends and security environment balance. So when you look at it, if the environment is deteriorating and the means are at best flat and you want to preserve as much of your ends as you possibly can, you've got to find better ways. And, and uh, it's not something that we're, we're, we're good at that in the operational side and the tactical side, but at the strategic side, we have a very hard time. So you mentioned within uh, the, the credible defense means you mentioned some things like speed of light weapons, so high high power microwave, uh, laser weapons, those kinds of things, right? So that's far on the R and D perspective. Those are things that are coming. All the the, the major prime contractor DoD uh, companies are working on those kinds of things. You know, laser weapons, more powerful laser weapons, the ability to not get into a uh, a trade-off of you know missiles shot at you and you've got to shoot back with the same number of missiles or more missiles and you're out of your Winchester very quickly. Okay. So in addition to that, if you're if you're in, uh, investing in the future with with some of those speed of light weapons, what are the things that you can get rid of in the fort now to to trade off some defense dollars uh, to pay for the future? Yeah. So uh, first of all. Um, if you look at the budget taxonomies and, and truth and advertising, I work for a little company. I, I advise a little company called Govini that is really good at vacuuming in all the budget data and parsing it in ways that Bob Work, uh, who's the chairman of the Naval Institute and I, uh, when we work together as deputy secretary and vice chairman, we wish we had had the ability to tease these things out like, OK, so how much are we really spending on these new things? Um, and it's really not very much. Uh, when you consider that you throw a few billion dollars after a, getting a, a vaccine from you know three years down to maybe one year, uh, the art of the possible is there if you're only willing to invest in it. And, and so it it actually isn't that much more that you would have to apply in order to really speed these things up. But you're right. It's a zero sum game. So if I'm going to throw you know another X amount of dollars into developing high powered microwaves, for example, which I would root for over lasers. Uh, as an, as a speed of light weapon, uh, it's got to come from somewhere. So uh, now look at what what is out there. And, and we talk in the article about um, identity metrics for the services, right, where, you know, the army identity metric number of troops, uh, 10,000 troops is a is a billion dollars. That's a pretty standard number. Uh, the Navy talks about 355 ships. Are you kidding me? I'd love to have 355 ships. I mean, sign me up. But I lived in the days of Vern Clark uh, going through and saying, you know, we have understated the requirement and we have underfunded the understated requirement in terms of maintenance and and manpower and that sort of thing. It's just not achievable. So uh, I think there, there are some coming around on the edges uh, in terms of force structure. 
that we could do without sacrificing readiness that could pay for some of these transformational um, ideas that are out there that could be accelerated very quickly and put into service. Um, it's just a matter of, and, and, and you know, I've always said that when the budgets go down, service chiefs, who I love, um, uh, will say, we will um, get smaller before we will go hollow. We, we will not allow our service to go hollow. And then when it comes to that moment to jump off that cliff of getting smaller, they cannot bring themselves to do it, and Congress will not let them. Because the member of Congress doesn't care whether the F-15 squadron in, in his or her district is actually flying. They just want them there. And by the way, if they're not flying, there are no noise complaints. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Ward will be very familiar with that. Yes. Our good friend Skip Zobel will love hearing that. <laughs> we talk about procurement reform. It's, as you mentioned, I would love to have you and Bob work on the show to talk about acquisition reform. Um, so I think of the poster child. Uh, you know, I thought V-22 was the poster child for best practices and worst case. Now I think F-35 has assumed that mantle. Why does it take so long, and, and how could we speed that up in the face of how we've framed the future threat? Yes, yeah, that's a good question. And Bob and I uh, addressed that sort of at a high level when we were in office together. And I think we uh, came to the conclusion that, uh, first of all, technology is really, really hard. Uh, and, and you look at, remember the V-22 when it first came out? It was a mess. People were saying it's a death trap. It's, the hor it's a horrible waste of money. It's my God, why are we doing this thing? And now we can't buy enough of them because we got through that V20, what I call the V22 moment. F35 is, is, is you know, sort of on steroids, uh, that V22 moment. You're right. But it's a heck of an airplane and it's going to be a heck of an airplane. So I think the, the conclusion that Bob and I came through is, is you have to do the best you can with these platforms. They're hard. They're high tech. They're the best in the world. Nobody else can do this. And, and they're going to be all kinds of Stumbles. Just look at the Ford class carrier. But what, where we really focused our attention was what's on what rides on those platforms, and that and that um, we could have been a heck of a lot more nimble in uh, coming up with with uh, uh, the plat not platforms but payloads. There you can just be incredibly innovative with the kinds of things you put on a on a state of the art weapons platform and let it go. Uh, and then on top of that. You know, uh, back to sort of the general theme, there really are sort of two stages here, right? And I call them horizons of innovation. You know, the first horizon of innovation is sort of the, the you know, make it a little better thing. The second horizon of innovation is what we're really good at as a country, and that is give me a step function improvement, but within the current concept. So we built the F-35 to take on the Chinese under our existing concept, and it's really going to be a good platform. At some point, you've got to have the courage to, to take to the third horizon, which is rethinking the entire concept. And when you get to that entirely new concept, that that uh, demands uh, new and different technologies, uh, really, really amazing, smart, offensive minds. You know, there's no constituency in the Navy uh, for that. And I wrote an article in Proceedings a couple of years ago about that. Uh, but but if when you look back in history and see how, first of all, we are the victims of offensive minds. Uh, we, you could argue that we won World War II against the Japanese in large measure due to offensive mining. Uh, you, you, it's sort of curious, is why don't we pay more attention to this? Well, there's no four-star out there who's a, a miner uh, who, who loves this thing and believes in it and is willing to push it uh, against the, uh, the backdrop of a new concept that would say, hey, we could use this to deter China. 
Well, isn't the problem with that back to what you're talking about in terms of the industrial base and the lawmaker side of the iron triangle, if you will, right? So you're talking about disruptive technology that could put the Pascagoulas and the Mariettas and the Grottens of the world potentially, if not out of business, certainly uh, meter down their business. You're isn't that part of the problem? Spot on, as usual, Ward. Uh, this is an iron triangle. Uh, in fairness to industry, Yes, industry is going to want to protect what they call franchises. They're, if they've got a, a production line rolling and it's producing profit, you know, they just soon let that baby go. They'll make incremental improvements to that baby as time goes on. And then someday it'll go away and it'll get replaced. But they want to keep that franchise rolling. So, and so, does, so do members of Congress. By the same token, if you give industry money to develop something and, and, and really demand that they do it, they will come through. Uh, so I, I think uh, you know, somebody's got to lead this process. And I think the, the real leader has to be a, a noisy, impatient, creative, courageous and insistent uh, military leadership that says, I am going to lose this fight unless I do this, uh, unless I you know, develop this thing and I develop it quickly. Uh, Congress, I need your backing on this and industry. Here's some money. Go do it. Uh, and then you've got to kind of help them with their, you know, with their franchise. And this is why when I talk about hyper or, uh, high powered microwaves, you know, high powered microwaves have the potential for really disrupting uh, the seeker of an inbound uh, cruise missile or even an inbound anti-ship ballistic missile. And there's no magazine problem. It's just electric power that's shooting these things. And it can shoot a lot of a lot of rounds and a lot of things coming in. But I wouldn't necessarily want to put all my eggs in that basket. It's a heck of a neat basket if it works. I would argue that, hey, let's still keep some kinetic you know, uh, uh, missiles out there that can shoot things down because I want to I flip the advantage back to the defense here. And, and having both those speed of light weapons and the kinetic weapons is a good thing. And that sort of reassures industry like, OK, I'm going to keep my franchise. I may not sell as many of X you know, fads or whatever you want to call them. Uh, but at least it's there. And in the meantime, hey, I'm the one who's going to be developing this new thing. So I, I think it really does take military leadership to make this happen. Before we leave means, and I want to talk about the security environment more in detail, you mentioned Ford class. The issues, the challenges we're having with Ford class are well-documented, new emails and weapons elevators and that sort of thing. I think all of us here on the call are carrier guys and uh, we're bullish on that capability. Um, but you remember a couple of years ago, as Bill framed it, you got to give up something to do something. And it seemed like CNO Richardson, my classmate and good friend, was intimating tacitly that we're, we're going to have to give up aircraft carriers in lieu of cyber capability. What, in your mind, is the future of the aircraft carrier beyond the existing funded Ford class? Yeah, this is a really, really tough uh, question for, for people like us, right? Uh, and and I, I, uh, I, I sort of... Uh, refer to maybe this is exhibit A of of the overall problem of, of the community problem where you have leaders who who are just emotionally tied to how they grew up in the military. Just try to get an army uh, person to admit that you know tanks are are pretty vulnerable right now, and and maybe that's not the kind of warfare we're going to see in the future. Same thing for us. So uh, there was the the prize winning essay this year was a great one that was was reopening that argument, if you will. In the meantime, people have reopened the argument on the size of aircraft carriers and that sort of thing. Uh, and, you know, whenever I get a, a scratchy feeling on my neck that, you know, something that I really love 
may not be as valuable as it used to be, uh, I have to pay attention to it. And it's especially hard because when you look at this machine called an aircraft carrier, that, that's a that's the, the the an amazing blend of nuclear, electrical, uh, hardcore steam aircraft people. I mean, it's just the, the, one of the most amazing um, machines that's ever been produced on our planet. What's not to love? Uh, but you also have to account for the fact that the adversary has been thinking really hard about this uh, for a long time. And, and a lot of their effort has gone into countering it. So I would say that this is, again, one of those things. Uh, it just goes without saying eventually this animal is going to have to either change a lot. We're going to have to flip the, the, the advantage back to the defense or it's going to have to eventually be, you know, go away. That's a very hard thing for for any large institution to do. It's like the it's like the wet film camera, uh, and and so uh, it, we really need to be serious about looking at that. Can we defend it? No kidding, uh, because remember, you know, one hit on that thing is a mission kill. I'm sorry, but one hit on it is probably a mission kill. Are we going to be able to do that? Uh, is is a tough question. Back to the adversary for a minute. Um, later in your article, you get to finding another way to win. And you talk about uh, deterrence and the two key parts of deterrence are uh, imposing costs on the enemy and denying their objectives. So talk a little bit about both of those, imposing costs uh, against what China is trying to do and then also denying what their objectives are. Yeah. Um, so deterrence really has three pillars, uh, imposing costs, denying objectives and entanglement. And the uh, d depending on who you're trying to deter, uh, that, that determines which of those three pillars comes into play. For example, with North Korea, entanglement's not a factor, right? We're just, we don't do economic activity with North Korea. We have nothing to lose economically if North Korea you know, vanishes. Uh, not so true with China. So I don't really mention that entanglement aspect, although there is an element of it in the article. Uh, and it's really important to be clear on what we mean by denying objectives and imposing costs. Denying objectives means if the enemy is trying to do something, they're they're not going to succeed. They're not gonna they're not going to be able to take Taiwan, or they're not going to be able to launch a ballistic missile from North Korea at the United States. Uh, it's going to get shot down. Imposing costs is not imposing costs on necessarily on the force that did that as they're doing it. Imposing cost is imposing costs on the nation that did it. The real way to deter China, I think, is, is yes, you'd like to deny their objective of invading Taiwan, whatever. But, but I think, you know, that may or may not work. But if China knows that uh, if they try this, there is a, a strong coalition of nations that will um, condemn them, resist them and make them pay a price, uh, an economic price. And that on top of that, if they have the feeling that we have ways of interfering with their ability to control their population, in, in the aftermath of such an action, that might prevent them from doing it in the first place. Is taking Taiwan worth the, communist, the Chinese Communist Party coming down in flames because there's a, a, an uprising in China? Uh, and, that, and that's, you know, that's something you have to make them fear. And we don't, we just don't do that. In the first paragraph, you frame it around the end of a cycle. Is the current cycle, the, the post 9/11 asymmetric war? 
you know, from the time you were skipper of Enterprise until you, you retired as the vice chairman. And the other thing that scares me when we talk about China versus Taiwan is that's the, that's the predictable thing, right? And you say that the war will come from somewhere we don't know. So we know that would be a predictable kinetic pain point. And so that's probably not the one that's going to happen. So first of all, I would say that the post 9-11 piece is a cycle within a cycle. It's a mini cycle. Uh, and so I'll, maybe if I can remember, I'll get to that uh, in a second. The, the larger cycle is is this international order unraveling potentially that could cause a conflict with China or Russia. And I think um, uh, rather than say the uncertainty is over where the war is going to be, um, I, I think we we kind of know that uh, it, it's you know we have a, we have that bounded pretty well. It's really a matter of 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 uh, how it starts. And whether it starts and when it starts, and you know, there's there was plenty of tension before World War II between Japan and the U.S. There was plenty of tension between Germany and the U.S. and the like, and people just really didn't imagine. You know, this could actually lead to a big bad war. Uh, it was they were just sort of in this denial. Uh, hey, I'm I wake up in the morning, I check my portfolio, I go to work, I mow the lawn, and, and oh my God, uh, how did this happen? So I think that's the that's the sort of question of, of what is it that kicks this thing off, and is it some is how do we avoid that, uh, and and that is the longer cycle. Uh, to your question about this mini cycle is is um, you know we've really paid a price I think for um, uh, for what we've done over the last twenty years in in this counterinsurgency world, and and let me let me let me give you the, the a glimpse of how I think about this. Because uh, it's important. And that, this goes to the, the variable of ends. Uh, how do you look at ends? What are our objectives in the world? What are we trying to defend and advance in the world? Those are our ends. And the way I looked at that as a vice chairman and uh, Marty Dempsey, as the chairman, and I agreed on this. I'm actually right again about this is uh, uh, a, a abstract and prioritized list of national security interests. Now, normally when people talk about national security interests, they'll go, it's a vital interest of the United States that the Strait of Hormuz remain open. Well, well, that's true, but that's too specific. I want to know why is that a vital interest? I need to trace that upward to something that's more abstract and fundamental. And that's where this list of interests comes in. And the list goes something like this. Survival of the nation is number one. Prevention of catastrophic attacks on the nation is number two. Think 911, think one-off nuclear weapon, think you know catastrophic cyber attack on our electrical grid, those kinds of things. Number three would be protection of the global operating system. Some people call it the international order. I prefer to call it the global operating system because that sounds cooler. Um, the, uh, the fourth one is secure, confident, and reliable allies and partners. Um, they're, they're number four. They're not as important as number one, two, or three, but they're still important. Um, they're vital to our prosperity and security, um, and we have to lead them. We have to support them. And then number five is what I would call extension uh, uh, or preservation and extension where possible of democratic or, or, of universal values. And that could be everything from prevention of genocide to extension of democracy uh, and a whole lot of stuff in between. So with that in mind, let's look at what we did in the post 911 aftermath. Um, we went and we we disabled the, the Al Qaeda threat in Afghanistan to a very large measure, not completely, but to a very large measure. 
And then from there, we decided that we were going to transform a nation in order to eliminate any possibility whatsoever of that last remaining 5% chance that al-Qaeda could hit us from Afghanistan could ever happen again. We just felt so strongly. And look at what we've expended in the 18 years. A lot of blood, a lot of treasure, uh, a lot of credibility, and a lot of opportunity cost, and it's distracted us from this other potential fight. And I would argue that um, the way we looked at using force vis-a-vis those interests is if you have a particular scenario, situation, you would look at that in light of against those five interests, and you'd look for three things. You'd look for how many of those interests are intersected by this situation. You would look for how high are those interests intersected by this situation. And then you would look at how deeply are those interests intersected. Is it just a little bit or is it a lot? And I would argue that in the immediate aftermath of 911, we had pretty high interests that were intersected in Afghanistan. Get rid of al-Qaeda so we'll never have a, or at least really minimize the opportunity to have a catastrophic attack on the United States again. Um, but once that was mitigated, what was the interest? Was it, and and the, so the higher the correlation there, the more willing you are to use force, to do it unilaterally, to do it at great cost in blood and treasure, to do it at opportunity cost, to push against international law, to risk your reputation as a nation. And the reverse is true. So I could argue that, you know, from about 2002 on in Afghanistan, maybe we didn't need to commit so much. And certainly, if you compare the first Gulf War to the second Gulf War, in light of that method I just described, there's a huge difference uh, between the interest at stake and what, how we actually approach that problem. And that is what has led us to today. And we're really in catch up mode um, uh, because of it. What extent is it important that every or, or the majority of Americans are on board with what those national priorities are, those national security priorities. I mean, do we educate Americans in junior high and high school now enough that they have a common understanding of, hey, this, this, the world is a dangerous place. It's important that the global operating system support um, the American objectives and American national security and values and ideals that it's important that we have these alliances and why we have alliances. Do we do do Americans have a common enough understanding of those things now to prioritize on a national basis what we're trying to do in the world, what we want to achieve in the world? Yeah, I think I think to understand that uh, you you do benefit from having a fundamental knowledge of history and you know those those sort of humanities things that you would like to learn in elementary and secondary school and even in college. And, you know, it goes without saying, I think, that that we're not very good at that. We're not as good at that as we used to be. But I also would say that it's incumbent upon political leadership to uh, find a way to communicate clearly and simply to the American people how they're going to approach these problems. You know, listing five national security interests and, you know, we're going to pay attention to the most important ones. You know, Donald Trump did that in a really simplistic way. He said America first. And uh, if you look down that row of national security interests, America first takes care of the first two and a half, you know, survival of the nation, prevention of catastrophic attacks and, you know, the global operating system, but only where it benefits us uh, directly rather than indirectly. Uh, and I think that a, a different approach might say, well, we're going to treat all five of those things, but, you know, they are in priority. And so we're going to prioritize them. And I think communicating that to the American people. And when I talk to audiences and I give a talk on national security, I walk through that system and, and I start off by saying, 
you know, you're watching TV every day and there are talking heads on TV who are yelling at you, trying to get you to believe what they want you to believe. And you need to have your own framework for assessing a situation and deciding whether it makes sense to go bomb all the Russian runways in Syria or not. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, that sounds like a great idea. Maybe it'll work for three days until they fill the runways back in. But let me look at this in terms of where it lands on the priorities in terms of national security interests. Eh, maybe not such a good idea. Um, so I, I do think empowering people to think for themselves and then encouraging them to do it rather than just listening to their preferred channel, whether it's on the left or the right, and drinking that Kool-Aid. We need to teach them to be skeptical about whatever they hear from whomever uh, and have some framework for which to assess it. That's a hard problem. <laughs> yeah, massively. So, uh, Evan, what else is on your radar? Uh, how are you surviving the uh, the quarantine life? I'm I'm doing well. I, it, almost to the point of feeling guilty. You know, I, I the kinds of things that I'm doing in my life right now. You know, sitting on boards and running a nonprofit and that that sort of thing. Uh, I'm I'm doing all the same meetings that I used to do, but I'm doing them like this from home. And um, that leaves a lot of free time for other things. Uh, I'm able to do a little more reading than I used to, to be able to do, which has been really rewarding. Uh, I built a garden in my backyard, so now I'm a farmer. Uh, and, um, uh, and I had a chance to do a little bit of writing and, and that sort of thing. But I'm not, not traveling an awful lot. I did have the opportunity yesterday, though, I have to tell you. I uh, flew down with um, uh, some very good friends, uh, and, and she is the sponsor of LCS 19. The, the future USS St. Louis, which will be commissioned on August 8th in Mayport with an audience of one because of COVID. And, but we were allowed to go visit the crew, uh, Mission Barbecue. We did a barbecue down there on the, on the ship. And uh, boy, those ships have come a long way uh, from their beginnings, their humble beginnings. Uh, crew was fantastic. And I can't tell you how great it was to be down there smelling salt air and walking aboard a Navy ship for, for only three hours. And then I had to come back. Uh, to D.C. And of course, it was all done very safely, masks, social distancing, very, very uh, careful uh, protocols there. But what a great, uh, you know, jailbreak for me <laughs> in the middle of the summer. No, I know those kind of things that we, you know, we took them for granted, these normal, normally normal things like that. So the article is Winter is Coming. It is in the July issue of Proceedings Magazine. The author is Admiral James Winnefeld, who I've known since the summer of 1978, when I was a plebe in plebe summer, and he was a TAD ensign waiting to start flight school, fresh caught from Georgia Tech. So, uh, Admiral, thanks for writing. You've always used the independent forum. You've been a, uh, a lamplighter in that regard. So thanks for continuing to do it in retirement. Well, thanks to both of you for uh, your dedication uh, to advancing the profession that we all love. Uh, and uh, it means a lot to us out here that you all are willing to give your, uh, you know, later on in life, as it were, uh, to making this, uh, this better. Thanks. All right. Thank you, sir. That wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. And remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll catch you next week.